following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Hey, it's Adam Carolla. The greatest time of the year is back. College basketball. That's right. March Madness, March Mania, and March Money. Join in on everyone's favorite game, the Bracket Challenge Contest at betonline.ag. Sign up for a free account, receive your 50% welcome bonus, and make your picks. All the early lines for all the games are now available, so don't miss out on any of the action for the next three weeks at betonline.ag, the exclusive partner at Podcast One Sportsnet. You learn to walk by walking, or you learn to walk by falling down, and you can read books about it, you can talk about it, but I think the, the best way to learn is the experience, actually, of doing something you want to do. Welcome to the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do in-depth interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. Today in the Forbes interview, we're going to discuss the intersection of high retail and luxury and high art. And to help us with that, we have two great guests. First, we have the CEO of Van Cleef and Arpels, Nicola Boss. Hello. And the world-renowned artist, Robert Wilson, who's most he's done everything, I think, except a rap album, but he's most famous for um, his incredible theater creations. Uh, well, thank you for joining us, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start by describing to the audience here this incredible installation that you've built in Manhattan. I, I didn't want to design a, a jewelry showroom, so I, I'm a visual artist, and uh, my work is best known in, in the theater. And so I approached the installation the way I approach a, a directing an opera, a writing an opera, or a play, is that uh, I thought about the space and I thought about the light. The light creates the space. And I was asked to do something that would be Noah's Ark. With, with some very expensive animals, correct? With the expensive animals. And they're, they're very small, these expensive animals. And beautifully crafted by hand. I think by drawing. I draw a lot. So mm-hmm. I began to draw, make drawings of the light and, and of the space. And I first designed a very large uh, boat. I thought we would enter this boat and inside you'd see these little small jeweled animals. And somehow I just didn't feel right. So I scrapped that idea and I started thinking about what is this boat? And I envisioned it being in a large body of water. Mm -hmm. And that if you see it that way, it's just a little speck. So I decided to put a a very small boat and try to create a vast space. And I did that with with video and and the way the room is is lit. And Nicola, so this is an uh, installation for you know the theme is Noah's Ark, and what you're what you're showing here. Explain to me these these are beautiful jewelry pieces. Um, they come in pairs, Noah's Ark of animals. Explain to me what this pro- uh, I guess what this product or what this project is, um, and how um, you and Robert decided to collaborate on this. Year after year, we we create collections, usually with a narrative behind, with a theme and inspiration. Um, and a few of these collections have to do with nature 
as mm -hmm. an inspiration because it has been throughout more than a century of existence of the house, uh, a major source of inspiration with a specific vision of nature, on nature which is quite uh, positive and whimsical. Mm -hmm. um, and we thought of it really as um, a collection, um, like a collection of sculptures or objects, which is why we chose to create only brooches, which mm -hmm. is rather unusual for a high jewelry collection. Usually you would have necklaces and bracelets and rings. Uh, so just, just brooches? Just brooches, because the brooch uh, in, in our world of, of jewelry is probably what is the closest to an object, a sculpture. Mm -hmm. So you don't have the constraints of the shape you know, of a necklace or, or bracelet. And so we created these uh, you know, dozens of, of animals and, and couples. And, um, and we think in, in general with the team that... Um, Hydrury, yes, is, is a commercial activity. As you mentioned, you know, these pieces are quite expensive. Yeah, what are, what are the kind of price ranges? We, we um, they're between, you know, 100 and 500,000 US dollars, pretty much. Well, I'll go and I'll take a dozen when I, when I go. <laughs> You're more than welcome, you know, and uh, you can really choose your favorite pet. Um, but yes, so there is, there is, of course, a value and a price attached to them. But we, we believe that... Um, yeah, fine jewelry is a commercial activity, okay? Mm -hmm. But it's also uh, a form of art and decorative art that can be enjoyed and experienced as other form of arts uh, without a feeling or a will to possess. And sometimes we are a bit frustrated in a way that um, only collectors, connoisseurs, clients mm -hmm. will see these pieces. And uh, if you think of it, it's, it's a bit like if you were only uh, you know, showing Picasso paintings to Picasso buyers mm. and collectors then you know that, that would be very very restrictive so i'm not saying that you know hydrury has the same universal reach as picasso painting but we've learned along the, the, the years that when we create something quite exceptional an experience with uh, you know working with an artist working with a museum uh, there is really quite a wide audience that does enjoy mm -hmm. discovering you know, the craftsmanship the inspiration the narrative behind these pieces without thinking of their price uh, or their scarcity because i understand it you know a normal van Cleef showroom is um invitation only you can't just walk in it's appointment only correct usually no no, no. we have but stores that are stores, where right. everybody okay. is more than welcome to, to, to walk in but it's true that usually a collection like that uh -huh. um is not gathered in one store so uh, when when we gather it it's usually around you know a, a specific presentation an event and very often these events are, are quite private mm -hmm. and when we work with, with museums, as we did, for instance, with the Cooper Hewitt here a few years back in New York, uh, it's usually under a, a historic point of view. So they exhibit you know, um, ancient pieces, uh, which, grets, which gives a great historical perspective, but doesn't really enable to feel how hydrury translates today, you know, what mm -hmm. we do in our workshops. What is kind of the business aim? Because you're bringing all these great pieces together. You're hiring you know, Robert to come in and build a you know a beautiful work of art himself with you know tens of thousands of lights. Correct. This is a big you know beautiful installation, um, opening it to the public. When you kind of had this idea as a businessman, what is kind of the motivation and what makes it a success? What are, what is your goal when doing something like this? It's kind of a long term goal. I think that uh, once again, you know, it, it is a business for sure, and we have commercial activities. Um, but for that activity to remain relevant, you know, if you think really in the long term, uh, it has to exist not only, you know, on Fifth Avenue and mm -hmm. as a part, a component of the luxury industry, but it has to exist as an artistic category and an expression of, of craftsmanship. And for that, it has to be 
you know, enjoyed, understood, appreciated by more than uh, a limited number uh, of, of customers. And mm -hmm. so for a very long time, we, we've, we've thought, and, and I really strongly believe in the fact that uh, it's, it's a category that deserves some time to be, uh, to be shared and to be exhibited outside of mm -hmm. you know, the expected um, site of uh, you know, commercial space. I see. And Robert, you, know, you have an extensive career besides you know, your giant body of your own work. You've collaborated with everyone from Tom Waits to Lady Gaga and now with Nicola. What was, how did this kind of partnership come um, to be and what is it that interests you? Like, how do you jump in from, uh, from an artist to doing something more commercial like this? What is kind of the motivation and how did, this, to, how did you guys decide to build this together? This exhibition is happening here in New York. It happened in Paris and Hong Kong. Mm. And there are plans for it to go to other uh, major cities. And city life is very busy. And uh, it's necessary, I think, in, in these busy environments if we can find a space where it's like nature, mm. where you can daydream. It has the time of nature. The time it takes a cloud to cross the sky, or like what you, if you go to a park and you sit. So I wanted to create a space that was in somewhat counterpoint to the busy, hectic life of the city, something calm and something tranquil. And, you know, I don't see so much difference between something that's commercial or something that's decorative or whatever label you want to put on it. A line is a line. Yes. And so if you're drawing a, a costume or if you're Matisse drawing a line or if you're building a building, Marcel Breuer said, in the detail of this chair that I've designed are all my aesthetics, the same aesthetics that go into designing a building and the same aesthetics that go into designing a city are inherent mm -hmm. in the detail of the chair. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Brought to you by LifeLock. Equifax recently announced a breach of 143 million identities, and it seems like a good idea to take steps to get protection. Be among the millions who trust their identity theft protection to LifeLock. Go to LifeLock.com, use promo code Forbes for 10% off. And in this um, installation, what part of what what details did you put forward? Like, what is your signature touch that you were able to add to the to the the collection? To give space to the jewelry. And so that I could see that. And <clears throat> I think my original designs were too busy. Mm -hmm. So the, they were competing with what we're there for, is to have this experience of being in a, in a space that I've never seen before, a place I've never been before. Mm -hmm. But I can focus on looking at this jewelry, which is exquisite in detail. So... If you take a space and you put a lot of stuff in the space, it's one thing. But if you take a space and put something very minimal mm -hmm. or nothing, whatever you put in that space becomes more important. So I essentially created a, this vast space in which you could see these little jeweled animals. To me, they're like uh, stars in the sky or mm. a navigator chart for this little boat that's at sea. You mentioned you know busy, and I think busy is a great way to you know sum up our lives these days. But also in the world of 
of marketing and media and just publicity. Um, obviously, you guys do very high-end jewelry, but uh, so much of retail is retreating from the physical stores, and they're all about creating scalable marketing, marketing that can be you know picked up in a quick tweet or an Instagram or a post. This seems like the antithesis. What is you know the the thought here and motivation of creating a single big installation versus everyone else is going digital? Or is that the idea? Do you want people to share these these um, images on on the media with their friends and I think there is no contradiction I think they're completely complementary mm-hmm. I mean that but they they stand for very very different types of experience I mean okay you we all you know spend time looking at Instagram and going from one picture to mm-hmm. the other and and sometimes you know it it's emotional it's interesting uh, but you don't experience physically and there is no notion of of time there. It's uh, you know everything has to go fast and yes. uh, you know images have so th- and this is the world that we're living in and there are great opportunities there because to tell stories to uh, you know to share images to uh, that's apps I mean, these these tools are fantastic. But then we believe that nothing can replace a physical experience and that what makes these these pieces so special uh, like you know a lot of works of decorative art or artworks is the time that is put into them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they take years to, to, to produce, to design, sourcing the stone, the production itself, uh, and the level of, of sophistication uh, of these pieces, the level of detail, can only be achieved through time. You lose track of space and time, you know, in, in, in Bob's installation. Mm-hmm. Um, is a perfect way, uh, and actually it's interesting, you know, people entering the space, you know, they... Sometimes they enter with their phone in their hand and then they forget that they have the phone in their hand and yeah. they forget to take pictures and they just you know go from one piece to the other and they enjoy and they're surprised by some of the sound and the experience. Are you selling a lot of the product? Are the, are the animals being adopted? Some of them have been, but actually the, the, the installation uh, doesn't really uh, come with that commercial purpose. Actually, mm-hmm. we, we have our collectors, some of them have seen the pieces, uh, but the purpose of the, of the exhibition here and the installation is really the experience for a wide audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe for them, you know, if they don't know about jewelry or the only thing that jewelry is, okay, expensive stuff that's not for them, they will probably discover that there is more to it than that mm-hmm. and that it's really something that can be appreciated and moving and experienced um, and that it's not just a matter of, you know, owning it. What is the current state of this, of the high jewelry business? Is it, I mean, there's been such a shakeup in in retail and just is it a very steady business? Is there new challenges that arise every couple of years, or what's kind of the, the current environment? The hydro activity in general in the last 10, 15 years um, has gone through a very positive period, I think, with much more diversity, uh, many more players. Uh, we've seen you know, a comeback of a figurative uh, jewelry, which was you know, had almost disappeared in the 80s and 90s. What is, what is that? What, what do you mean by figurative? Uh, like, you know, jewelry that is, uh, for instance, uh, we, we do some uh, brooches in the shape of animals oh, or ballerinas, okay. mm-hmm. uh, which was very strong, you know, if you think of the 1930s or 1960s. But mm-hmm. uh, that, so th- there was less diversity, if you think, you know, in the 80s or 90s. Fine jewelry was mostly, you know, important stones with, you know, quite a traditional setting. Mm-hmm. And it has, it's a world that has reopened up to much more artistic diversity and creativity, which I think is interesting. And we see probably there, you know, we've seen that there are more, you know, uh, wealthy collectors in, in the world. And we've seen that with the art market, with classic cars, with, uh, you know, uh, real estate. So it's all kind of rises and falls together? Yes, to, to a point, uh, yes. And uh, and they think that there is also that 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 
interest uh, or that taste for the unique piece, you know, for a special order, for something that takes time. Uh, and we really sense that appreciation, uh, you know, among our clients. I mm -hmm. mean, they like that idea through high jewelry of, you know, pieces that uh, combine, you know, century-old traditions with new techniques. They can follow, you know, the, the, the process of production that runs over, you know, two, three years. They kind of like also that idea that, uh, okay, everything goes, you know, super, super um, quickly in that world, but mm -hmm. you still have some some objects, some creations, some uh, situations that require time. Is the creation um, still kind of a traditional method or have, has technology changes in the last decade um, changed the speed or even changed what you could possibly do? Or is it still a kind of an old traditional um, craftsmanship kind of business? It's a mix of both. I mm -hmm. think, you know, all these pieces are handmade. Uh, but yes, we do use and integrate new technologies as I think, you know, craftsmen for, for centuries uh, have, have been willing to use the best available tools. Yeah. And some of the new tools, you know, using technology, if you think, for instance, of you know, laser soldering without getting technical, that enables uh, to, to create even more detailed, more precise pieces than the old uh, soldering techniques. But then when do, we do casting, we still do casting the way the Egyptians and the Greek did mm -hmm. casting. Wow. And Robert, with what, what's kind of exciting you with the art world these days? I mean, you do a lot of your artwork is to be experienced. It's physical. It's in the theater. Um, you know, there's been such a giant shift in the way people consume media and consume images and, and film and movies. How has that changed what you do, or has it is it been a cons consistent thing? Do you kind of ignore the the latest fads? I think what's exciting happening in the art world is that it, uh, you see more and more that the artists are thinking like uh, Renaissance people, that uh, you see architecture, painting, video, film, drawing, dance, theater, light. Podcasting? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone's kind of doing a little... They're fully multimedia. I think so, much more so than some years ago. I feel equally at home if I'm designing a chair or if I'm making videos or I'm doing whatever, and I combine all of that. It's all a part of one vocabulary. And uh, I did the 20th, 25th, and the 30th anniversary of Giorgio Armani. Mm. I did at the Guggenheim Museum, and we showed it at museums all over the world. And a lot of people said, you know, you're going to put fashion in, in the Guggenheim Museum. Yeah, why not? As I said, a line is a line. So if you're designing a tire for a car or a, a brooch or you're making a drawing on a page of paper or designing a building, or it's, it's all one concern. Hmm. If, you were, if you sit, I know you do a lot of work with you know, younger artists. If you were sitting down with a, say, 20-year-old aspiring artist, what kind of advice would you give him or her? Well, I think the best advice I'd give you is uh, something Gertrude Stein said, that all artists need uh, only three things. They need encouragement, they need encouragement, they need encouragement. <laughs> and I met Martha Graham, the uh, American choreographer, when I was 22 years old, and she said, Mr. Wilson, what do you want to do in life? I said, you know, I have no idea said, if you work long enough and hard enough, you'll find something. <laughs> and I never forgot that. And sometimes nine times out of ten, you think, oh, this doesn't work, and what am I going to do? And 
but then suddenly you know, something happens. So there's no substitute in doing something. And that's one way we learn. You learn to walk by walking, or you learn to walk by falling down. Mm-hmm. And you can read books about it, you can talk about it. But I think the, the best way to learn is the experience, actually, of doing something you want to do. And we'll be right back after this quick break. With the recent credit bureau breach, one of the common questions is, should I freeze my credit? Unfortunately, taking this step won't protect you against every identity fraud threat arising from this data breach. Hackers got access to social security numbers, birth dates, and an unspecified amount of driver's license numbers. They can use this type of personal information to commit crimes in your name and even steal from your 401k. Now is the time to get protection. Sign up for LifeLock today. They use proprietary technology to detect a wide range of identity threats and will alert you if your information is being used. If there's a problem, one of their agents will work to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but LifeLock can help you see more than if you're just monitoring your credit. Go to LifeLock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK, use promo code FORBES, that's FORBES, for 10% off your LifeLock membership. Visit LifeLock.com and save 10% now. Hey humans, David Smalley here from the Dogma Debate Podcast right here on Podcast One where we talk about all the things you're not supposed to discuss at work. Religion, politics, abortion, racism, slavery, and that's only when we open the Bible. We discuss Islam, Islamophobia, what does that even mean? We chat with vegans, animal rights activists, and even visit factory farms to see it for ourselves. I invite people from multiple backgrounds to convert me into their worldview. But as long as they're okay with being respectfully challenged, you better bring your evidence. And I never lose sight of how both the left and the right are seeming to lose their minds. So basically, we're solving all the world's problems right here on Dogma Debate. And you've been missing it. Watch our 360 virtual reality videos on the Podcast One app and download Dogma Debate on iTunes, Stitcher, or PodcastOne.com. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like hitting all green lights good. Finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. Before in the show, you quoted Andrew Warhol, who said, you know, art is business, and I guess business is art. Um, both of you have, you know, very creative jobs, but at the same time, um, especially Nicola, as you, you, you know, you're the CEO. You know, part of your job is to direct the strategy and the creativity and the, the marketing, but also you have to make money and you have to, like, you know, balance the books. Um, how do you guys kind of balance those two worlds of, you know, a fine art, but also, you know, paying the bills and supporting your, your team and, you know, making investors happy i think you know in, in uh, what we sometimes call you know the world of luxury goods or creative industries um, you look back in history the successful ones have been the very creative ones mm-hmm. and the ones that have been able to innovate to create to bring something new from an artistic standpoint and also to run it as a kind of business with a long-term vision and you look at the grand or uh, the great luxury brands today uh, they are the ones that have been able to combine uh, this. You look, you know, Yves Saint Laurent and Pierre Berger, you look, you know, Hermès, you look 
Uh, it's always a combination of a real strong creative thinking and also a very, very uh, down-to-earth business approach and, and, and common sense. Before you launch a new a new brand or, or a new line, I should say, like this example, oh, we're going to make fine art in the shape of animals, for example. Um, you know, you're putting a big investment that these that the market wants these sort of things. They take time. They take hundreds of thousands of dollars. What is the process of when you start a new line? What how does that work? Is it very data oriented? Is it is it gut feeling? Is it taking looking at the market and see what the customers want? Like, how do you make that investment? It's really based on, on history and identity. I think that there is no market survey that will tell you, you know, there is now a real expectation on the market for pairs of animal brooches retailing around 100 to <laughs> 500,000 US. Or I, I haven't seen that market. Still. There's no Forbes list on that? I'm, I'm surprised. No, maybe no. you should start okay. one. Um, so, you know, it's because we're convinced that there is something that creatively can be meaningful. Uh, it's because also we've seen, you know, that's the great, great, you know, asset of the the history of a house like that. We've seen that, you know, over a century, mm-hmm. we've been able to create such pieces, and usually they've, you know, they've seduced and they've sold. So um, that's pretty much the only, um, you know, guarantee that we have. And how do you kind of keep that old tradition, but at the same time continue to innovate and you know bring fresh? ideas to to the markets i guess that goes with art and and commerce that collection noah's ark is uh, is an example of that it's uh, there is a tradition of uh, figurative jewelry i was mentioning of representation of nature and animal mm-hmm. uh, but we don't want to only reproduce what was done you know by you know our predecessors 20 50 70 years ago uh, we try to find a different angle so for instance you know that's uh, representation of Noah's Ark is a, a different angle that was never tried, you know, in jewelry or by the house, uh, which provides a new opportunity to treat that uh, representation of animals in jewelry. And that drives us also to use different techniques to mm-hmm. innovate uh, in terms of craftsmanship. And, and typically working with with Bob in, in that installation is something new. I mean, we wouldn't have done that, um, you know, 20 or 50 years ago. Yeah, this is kind of, how does the artist and the chief executive work together? It, it seems very kind of uh, like a Steve Jobs kind of thing in my head. Um, you guys come from two different worlds, kind of. How did when you how do you come together? How do you interact? Do you does Bob have a have free range? Do you give input or tweaks? I, I'm interested in how this kind of um, collaboration um, came together, but also how this actually physically works. Well, I, I just took a, a few key words uh, that. Nicholas mentioned, and they became sort of guidelines. Um, obviously, theater has to be about one thing first. Mm-hmm. And if it's not about one thing, it's too complicated. And often, uh, I think uh, when I go to the theater, it's, it's just too complicated. So for myself, I had to figure out, what is this one thing? And Nicholas doesn't have to know, but it it helped me get through it. Is the one thing like, a, is it a story? Is it a theme? Is it a character? Or it has to be something simple that I can grasp immediately. Then I can forget about it. So the basic idea is, uh, you know, there were very simple things that, that uh, Nicholas mentioned. Nature. I thought, well, that that's interesting. I mean, if we... What's wonderful about New York City is that you can go to Central Park and you sit on a bench. Yes. And your coffee break. And uh, you can daydream. So I was thinking about nature and the time of nature. It was a dialogue. 
But Nicholas, it was great to work with. Talk about your creative process. How long is it, you know, it's interesting how you pivoted from thinking of nature and trees and then you moved to oceans and art and light and sound. These kind of, when you brainstorm these things from your first conversation to like, okay, I know what I want to create. Is that a a week-long process? Is that a month-long process? Do you focus on many things, many projects at one time or do you kind of meditate on this one idea? I work on many things at once and... uh then I put them away, and I can come back and look at them freshly. Uh, and sometimes, you know, an idea comes quickly, and sometimes it takes a, a year or years. Um, you, you never know. And it, well, how about this case? Well, it took, uh, it was about a year. No? Yeah, a year. What I think is very important for me as, a, as an artist is uh, that I can continue to think about it, that it's, uh, I think... An artist's responsibility is to say what is something mm-hmm. and not to say what something is. So if you read Hamlet or something, you can read it one night one way and next mm-hmm. night another way. Nicholas, you've spent a lot. You, your career started, you were at the, the Cartier Foundation, correct? And you worked a lot with, with artists in kind of that side of the business, correct? Yes. What um what has that kind of taught you in this? Like, you know, brands are always fighting for uh, – or for what their voice is, for attention, with their aesthetic. What have you learned um, throughout your career working with um, with high art and also high high luxury? What, what what have you kind of taken away from that? I think a level of detail, precision, and 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 to be demanding and and to look for a kind of absence of compromise. I think I've been you know uh, very lucky at the Cartier Foundation and through my life to to meet and to work with some, some amazing artists from very, very different uh, backgrounds and, and in different um, categories of art. I've always been struck by the fact that the great artists are usually the ones that are the, the easier to work with, in a mm-hmm. way, yeah. uh, because they, they have their world, their vision, they know how to express it, they know when to say yes, they know when to say no. I'm extremely respectful of that. Going to, to, to somebody like, like Bob, you know, the idea was to give carte blanche. I mean, what he does, mm-hmm. I have no clue how to do. But on the other hand, maybe what I've learned that we, we, we use at uh, Advanced Cliff and Apples is that when you have an expertise in your own field, you should also be proud about it. So, you know, mm-hmm. the jury were quite proud of what we do. We believe that uh, we have an identity, we have skills, uh, we have extremely talented uh, designers, craftsmen. So uh, I wouldn't let anyone do the jewelry. Yes. <laughs> um, but I wouldn't interfere with the, the, the work of, uh, of a great artist when, when you know, we ask him to, to collaborate. And you mentioned before that you work with artists that have strong ideas and strong vision. And you've both of, you know, you, you have strong ideas and you, have, you take big risks in terms of what you're creating. Throughout your careers, what have, in terms of, a, of an installation or project, what has been some of the biggest surprises that you've, you've faced? Well, I, I, I never studied theater. I, I hadn't, if someone had told me when I was 25 years old that I would have a, a career in the theater in the next 40 years of my life, 30 years of my life, or something, I'd be working in the theater. I would have never believed it. It just happened by accident. How did it happen? What was, the, what, what, what was that first step to get you there? Um, I was walking down a street in Summit, New Jersey, and I saw a policeman to, uh, about to hit a black boy over the head with a club. And I grabbed his arm and I said, why do you hit this boy? And he said, it's none of your business. I said, but it is. I'm a responsible citizen. Hmm. Why do you hit the boy? 
And I left with the boy and walked with him uh, to a police station. I heard the sounds coming from him as a black person. So to make the long story short, I learned that the the boy was going to be institutionalized. Hmm. He had never been to school. I thought that he couldn't learn. As far as I could tell, he knew no words. He had grown up with uh, people who didn't understand that his his problem was one of not hearing. He was deaf. Hmm. Um... And I ended up adopting him. Really? At 20, 25? Yeah, I was uh, at that time 27, almost 28. Wow. And here, my life, suddenly my life completely changed. <laughs> I had this kid that knew no words. I thought I thought in words. And I thought he was intelligent, perhaps highly intelligent. Um, he didn't want to go to, uh, to school, didn't want a formal education. Uh, he made drawings, and I started to notice the way he saw things. He would see things I didn't see because I was preoccupied in what I was hearing. What were you doing at the time? What was your, your focus? I was, uh, I was teaching. Okay. And um, so I wrote a play with him that was hmm. silent, and I worked on it for a couple of years. And it was through dreams he had, observations he had, drawings he made, and... Um, so I showed it here in New York for a couple of times. It was a very long play, hmm. seven hours long. Seven hours, wow. And I showed about two and a half hours of it here in New York. Where'd you, what, where'd you show it? At the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Mm-hmm. I rented the house myself and produced oh. it and showed it. And um, Jacques Lang, who was uh, head of the Festival of Nancy in France, invited me to show the entire work two times. And we had a tremendous success. Pierre Cardin said, would you come, like to come to Paris and show it 10 times? And I ended up uh, performing this seven-hour play in silence, five and a half months. Was it all gestures or was it more of a, of a, of a dance or visual? It was visual. Mm-hmm. So there were, uh, the boy had uh, um, a fantasy and he drew a forest and then the forest was a, Gothic house, and uh, there was a table, and the head of the table was a frog drinking martinis. <laughs> so I staged it. Uh, but it was all silent. And much to my surprise, you know, we performed for a public of almost 2,000 people every night. And people would, would they stay the entire length of the, the play? They did. Wow. They did. And, um, Suddenly, I, I had an invitation to go to La Scala to do something at the Paris Opera, to go to the Piccolo Teatro in Milano and Berlin Opera. And I said, oh, wait, I don't know anything about theater. And I didn't feel qualified. Um, but I continued working. But it was something that happened just by accident. That's incredible. Yeah. And you're from Waco, Texas. I'm Waco, Texas. And what did people back home think when suddenly you're at La Scala? Well... <laughs> You see, Waco's a very particular city. It's a, it's a very right-wing, conservative. Uh, I grew up in a very conservative community, and uh, to go to the theater was a, a sin. It was a house of ill repute. Really? Wow. Yeah. Uh, it was very segregated and uh, racial, so uh, it was... Uh, for my father and for the family, it was a big shock that suddenly there was a black kid in the family and their son was making works in a theater. <laughs> so it was a completely different environment. There were no do they, do, they come, do they come around to it eventually? My mother died at a very early age. Mm. And my father, 
Uh, I think it was difficult for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your son, where is he now? Oh, he eventually went to Trenton School for the Deaf, mm-hmm. and uh, he now works for Bell Labs, and he has a girlfriend and a blue Buick, and he said, I'll come see you as long as I don't have to go to an art gallery or a museum or the theater. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible that you know you two work together, too. I mean, talk about outsiders and novices in the theater world, and you created this incredible phenomenon. Did you do other projects together? Yes, we did. We did three or four works in the beginning together. They were all silent, and uh, he's now learned to sign, and uh, so he knows that he, had, he grew up in Alabama and Louisiana and in rural communities, and they had never been around a deaf person, so they didn't really understand that his problem was one of not hearing, but now he's adapted uh, fully into the hearing world. Well, Nicola, I don't think I have to ask you to follow that, that story. That's pretty... Uh, pretty tough one to, wow. to follow, but beautiful one. That's a huge surprise in life. Um, well, that's a great place to end. Um, very fascinating show. I want to thank Nicola Boss, the CEO of Van Cleef and Arpels, and artist Robert Wilson. If you're in this town, um, come by in Midtown and check out this installation. Thank you guys so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a question or comment, please reach us at interview at podcastone.com. Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. What's going on, man? Hi, guy. Yeah. Yeah, the team. Loveline, man. You guys remember us from back in the day? Well, we're doing a pod, and we're doing it every day. And we've been doing it for a while. And if you, if I hear one more time people say, God, I loved you and Adam together on Loveline. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're doing a podcast. Will you please just join us at the Adam and Dr. Drew Show, please? AdamandDrewShow.com. It's a great show. Come on now. Only on Podcast One. That's us. Adam and Dr. Drew Show. Just like the old days. Doctor's orders. Oh, (laughs) Oh, man, you're funny. Yep. All right. Let's go save some babies. Let's do it. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Every bunny loves honey glazed carrots. A great side dish for your springtime celebration and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Your Bloody Mary bar will be the talk of brunch with the vodka I'm stalking. Pile those toppings sky high. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.